The views expressed on Geeks and Beats are those of the participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers. I'm so very discombobulated. Why is that? The uh, dirty vodka martini, not very dirty tonight. Mm. Well, I have a glass of uh, red wine mm-hmm. for a change. This is the uh, Tragically Hips Private Vintage. Oh, really? They released it late last year. I bought a case. It's all completely sold out. It is a very nice blend and uh, quite enjoying it. On well, the topic of uh, the Tragically Hip, Gord Downey's selling his house up the street from me. Does he live in your neighborhood? He does. He lives, well, I won't tell you exactly what street he lives on, but he's a couple of streets away from me. And uh, he has a beautiful house. And I showed the photos to a couple of friends. And they're like, wow, does his interior decorator realize it's not the 19th century? (laughs) Yeah, Gord has a um, particular way of looking at things. And some of it's pretty traditional. That would be a fair assessment. He's got a beautiful house, though. It's it's kind of uh, on an island in the neighborhood because of the grade of the neighborhood slopes down dramatically right at his house. So we basically walk not across a gangplank, but something similar to it. And then the basement is almost full height windows because it's really not the basement. It's more of the family room. Oh, the foundation of the house. Yeah. Because it's so down so low. Exactly. Oh, very nice. Very nice walkout. So if you got two and a half million and you're interested, you could live in my neighborhood with, with Gord. Is that what he's selling it for? Two and That's half? what he's selling it for. Yeah, I like real estate porn. I'm always uh, going to my real estate friends, my real estate agent friends, and asking what people are selling their houses for up and down my, my street and in my neighborhood. It's it's a terrible thing to do. <laughs> yes. But there's a certain amount of, uh, you know, like um, you want people to sell their houses for a lot of money, obviously, because that theoretically means that your house is worth a lot of money and uh, the people that you hate uh, you hoping that they're not getting very much for the houses so you get to engage in a little bit of shut and fraud yeah real estate porn that's an effective way to put it wifey and i call it yuppie porn when you watch all those shows the renovation shows no oh, i hate the property brothers i just hate they're on 24 hours a day in this house i just can't stand them and then Hey, it's, it's shall we actually do the show? Oh, yeah, I guess we should. Let's <laughs> let's go ahead. Sorry, we'll just get off in a deep rabbit hole here. Here we go. 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 Thinking of the Apple Watch? Wait, Casio's coming out with its own smart watch, and no, it won't have those tiny little calculator buttons. And are pop songs getting dumber? Science says yes. We'll tell you who's smarter than Lady Gaga, and who's dumber than Drake. Okay, it's Kanye West, but you knew that already. Opinions are like the Blackberry Bold. You find them everywhere, but nobody's impressed with them. And now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. I didn't know that the hype surrounding the War of the Worlds radio show may have been somewhat overblown. I didn't either until I ran across this from the Daily Beast. It's a story dealing with a a book. Uh, A guy actually, he did his uh, undergraduate thesis at the University of Michigan 
on a, on um, Orson Welles' War of the Worlds broadcast, which was uh, on October 30th, 1938. And if you know anything about the history of radio, you'll have heard the stories that this 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 radio show caused a panic when it was broadcast nationally because of its style. It uh, if you listen from the very beginning, it was obvious it was a radio play. The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air in the War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. But if you came in a little bit too late, it sounded like an actual news broadcast, an emergency. Uh, some sort of an emergency had happened with the Martians landing in New Jersey. Now, Orson Welles does come on at the beginning and, and, and lay down sort of like a prologue. Ladies and gentlemen, the director of the Mercury Theater and star of these broadcasts, Orson Welles. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's. Well, what didn't help either was that when the radio play opens, it opens like a regular radio variety show and you think you're listening to just some band playing a song and, and just part of that 1930s aesthetic that is the radio show of that era and then it's interrupted. Then we go to the fake radio show, which is then interrupted. And again, if you come in there... Wait a minute, something's happening. Humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from the mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. The Lord, they're turning into flames. Ah! Now the whole field's caught up by the woods. The fires are the gas tanks, tanks of the automobiles are spreading everywhere. Coming this way now, about 20 yards to my right. And remember, radio in 1938 is still a pretty new thing for a lot of people. It's, commercial radio really had only been around since about 1922 or 1923 for most people. Mm-hmm. And something like this was completely different for the time. I mean, we have these sort of dramatizations and fictional dramatizations all the time. We're used to them. But back then, it was brand new. And there was a lot of dead air. There was a lot of, uh, you know, what sounded like confusion. And radio at the time was was very, very buttoned down, very, very uh, coordinated and, and carefully executed. So this was very different. And, and a lot of people, the story was, heard this, freaked out, and actually thought that Martians had landed in the swamps in New Jersey. Now, according to this guy, though, uh, that was all overhyped. The, there were a number of people that did freak out, but not that many. A couple. And these are the stories that were picked up by the New York Times and the Boston Globe and everybody else across uh, North America. And that's how it all began. War of the Worlds was up against some pretty popular radio programs of its day. NBC's Chase and Sanborn Hour with the ventriloquist Edgar Bergen and his dummy Charlie McCarthy. So as a result, only about 4% of the radio audience actually heard the War of the Worlds broadcast. And most of them were in on it in the first place. And what was amazing was that Orson Welles was 23 years old at the time. Yes. He was given so much creative control for uh, for anybody that young. He was just it was just ridiculous the amount of of talent he had at the time. A couple of years later he would go on and create Citizen Kane, one of the greatest movies of all time. Uh, but this is fantastic. Um, so it was on CBS Radio, Mercury Theater of the Air, October 23rd, oh, sorry, October 30th, 1938, uh, Grover's Mill in 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 uh, in New Jersey, New Jersey is where it was supposed to have happened, 
And uh, I'm surprised, and I'm a little bit hurt by this, because I thought that, I mean, being a big fan of radio, I really thought this was true. I thought this illustrated the power of radio, but I guess not. Not in the same way, anyway. Interesting, though, the connection to present-day Internet. And you know, think about the number of people who allegedly die on Twitter every day, and the world gets all agog about that. This is a, a, a low-rent version of the War of the Worlds example. Well, I wouldn't call it low-rent. I would call it primitive. Well, it's much more easy to, to create a hoax today on the Internet and have it go viral than it was in 1938. Yeah, that's true. But... By the way, speaking of radio, what's your take now that you've had some time on Beats 1? First of all, I, I love the idea that Apple has chosen to call their global music radio station uh, radio. That's great because it is radio. I mean, it's this 24-hour stream of music featuring human beings programming it, curating it. The stream is punctuated by outbursts from real people in real time. And uh, the whole thing is not programmable in any way by the end user. In other words, you either accept what's coming out of your Beats 1 feed or you don't. As we discussed, though, I don't care about DJs anymore. So what did the DJ give you that a DJ on terrestrial radio could not? The only difference between Beats 1 and any FM radio station you might want to turn on is the delivery system. So then what's the big deal? Let me just go back to this idea of using radio to describe what it does. It brings the notion of radio forward in the thinking of again, uh, again of those who don't use radio as much as people used to, for example, people under the age of 25. I think this is great. We're using radio to describe something which is a one-way stream of information and entertainment. Um, the other thing that I've noticed is that almost all the media coverage about Apple Music is focused not on the streaming offerings within Apple Music, but on Beats 1. It's like all the tech media have discovered that somebody has put radio on the internet, which is something that... Uh, Rob Glazer did with Real Audio back in 1995. Well, don't you find it fascinating that we've sort of come full circle here? It started off as radio curated by individual music programmers, and you had no control over the content as it streamed out your AM radio or FM as the days moved on. And we went into the internet and iPods where everybody was their own curator, and then eventually we realized we weren't getting access to new music like we used to by listening to the radio, so we turned to Spotify and RDO and organizations that will curate actual playlists for you. Full circle back to Beats 1 doing this with actual DJs. This is no different than the FM radio that I used to listen to in 1978. And the most common review I've heard, and I'll paraphrase a little bit here, is I, can't, I can just put it on and let somebody else select the music. And then there's this human being that tells me something about this music. I don't have to worry about it. That's so cool. It reminds me of the publishing industry and the news business specifically as well. The belief that the public would be the ones to choose which stories were the ones they wanted to read. As we went into that you know, early 2000s world of, of online publishing, coming all the way back to five things you need to know today. Yeah, remember when Dig was big? Well, what do you know? We need to actually curate something for the masses who don't spend their school years learning about journalism. You make fun of DJs as part of a radio stream. What do you do for a living? You're the person that brings sense to the world of business. So people need you to curate 
all this business news. I mean, you're going to have a hell of a time this week with Greece. You see what I mean? You, you need somebody there sometimes to take you by the hand and expose you to something that you wouldn't otherwise be exposed to or give some give give uh, some kind of context and meaning to what you're seeing, hearing and, and otherwise uh, experiencing. So don't make fun of the DJs, Mr. Anchor. <laughs> London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GNB News Update. Patreon still going strong here on the big show. It's a good thing that we do have Patreon because we did have a, an emergency this week that required the expenditure of funds. Oh, a substantial amount of money, as a matter of fact. Uh, so, if, You want to explain what happened? Well, yeah. Bluehost, they were... <laughs> the 220,000 files we had on the server, apparently 20,000 more than our user agreement. We have 22 for unlimited service. Wait, we have 220,000 files on our on our on our on our hosting server? Apparently so, and we got to pair it back or or we could upgrade to a higher end service if if you don't mind laying out the more money, we can stop bugging you about this and make it 300,000 on your unlimited storage capability. I think we need to get the Oxford English dictionary out and explore the meaning, the definition of the word unlimited. You know who already did that? Who? The U.S. Supreme Court ruled that AT&T could not throttle the unlimited Internet service that they were providing, and therefore they will have to open their wallets. Unfortunately, we don't have the same power as the Supreme Court of the United States, so we had to open our own wallets. So we want to say very much a thank you to Rob Frimmer, Aaron Barlev, Brennan Tan, Craig Glassford, Aaron Warner, Blaine Bartlett, Leslie Rasmussen, and a whole bunch of others who joined the world's worst intern program using Patreon. And what that means is that it's the world's worst intern program because you pay us to work here and you don't actually do anything. We pocket the cash to help keep the show up and running. And you can do it at a dollar at a time. Well, listen, we, we did not pocket it this time. Well, of course not. Because uh, I'm just looking here. Unlimited. Not limited. Restrict, unrestricted, unconfined, boundless, infinite, vast, without any qualification or exception, unconditional. Apparently not. And uh, so what will happen is if you donate a dollar, you can specify a lifetime limit. So maybe you only want to support us for a month. So that's four episodes. That's a four dollar lifetime limit. And we will stop digging your uh, credit card at the end of every episode for doing so. So we want to say thank you very much for everyone who helped make this all possible, because it was very important for us to jump ship from Bluehost. Yeah, it was. Um so we we were down for a bit? We uh, Well, we were down for a little bit. We may be down for a little bit longer as I make that migration back and forth. So if you get a, uh, a file not found type error, you know that it's us and that we're just working on making that migration happen. So thank you very much for your patience on that. Bloody hell. Geeks and Beats update on Apple Watch. You and I have been talking a lot about this to the point where people have been texting us, tweeting us, messaging us in any way, shape, or form saying, enough with the Apple Watch already. So <laughs> what do you say we talk about Casio's smartwatch instead? I used to be a big Casio user. I had a running watch, a Casio running watch that I bought at a duty-free place in Barbados that was absolutely fantastic. So I'm a big fan of this company. Casio says its new smartwatch will be a watch that tries to be smart rather than a smart device that also happens to be a watch. 
What does that mean? I really don't quite understand. It's all in the very early stages right now. Uh, they apparently uh, went through a bunch of different tests with uh, test markets. Is this the uh, the G-Shock series by any chance? This is not the G-Shock sh- series specifically. It is sort of that next level version of it. They say, quote, we are trying to bring our smartwatch to a level of watch perfection, a device that won't break easily, which sounds like a dig at Apple. It's simple to put on and feels good to wear. I have got mm. one, two. I basically, I feel like I got three strikes against Apple based upon that <laughs> quote alone. First of all, you buy yourself an Apple Watch. If you get the Sport model, you're it's get it's sweaty. You get sweaty. You don't want that plastic band. Um, break easily. I got the Apple Extended Care Warranty because I was convinced that at some point this thing's going to break. Mm. Uh, and it's not very simple to put on either. No, I tried at the Apple Store and I couldn't quite figure. Out, I needed a guy to help me. Apparently, by the end of March, they will have uh, their new Apple Watch uh, or Apple Watch competitor. Oh, um, Casio, you mean? March of next year. Okay, well, that's fine. Yeah, which seems a little late to the game to me. Granted, Apple has always been late to the game on this as well. Well, there's no rush for Casio to get into the smartwatch market because they do very well with their their utility watches, right? And they do some really cool things like uh, humidity and altitude and. Um, they are, you know, if you want a digital watch that'll tell you multiple time zones, the Casio watches and the G-Shocks are really, really good at that. It's great for traveling and pilots. They sold about $153 million worth of those watches in just the last 52 weeks. Yeah, no, they're, they're, they're pretty cool. Um, bit big and bulky for me, um, but if you want a utilitarian watch that works really, really well for, um, you know, just to tell you specific types of data it's it's all you really need did you have uh, one of those original uh, casio watches that had the calculator built into it no i didn't i i resisted having one of those things because i knew i would lose the little stylus that came with it <laughs> the expectation is that they want to sell about uh, 80 80 million dollars worth of the units i'm trying to convert it from yen in in, in my head well it's uh, about 100 yen to a dollar now the overall smartwatch market according to the uh, independent research from ihs is expected to grow to 101 million units shipped by 2020 2020 seems like a billion years away no it's less than five years exactly um a Last year, 3.6 million smartwatches were sold. So that is a remarkable growth rate. And Apple's expected to be half that market. Hmm. But at what price point? Well, again, the Apple side of things, it's $500 to $1,000 generally. But this one's going to be uh, priced in about the range of $350. Mm, Yeah, okay, fine. I'd still have a look at it. It's not as pretty as the Apple Watch. I don't even know if we really know what it's going to look like at the end of the day. No, well, okay, fine. But uh, Casio has been a very um, LCD, segmented LCD uh, kind of display company. The Casiotron was their very first smartwatch back in 1974, which predates, of course, the, the one that I was asking you about with the, uh, with the little buttons for the calculator on it. Mm, that would have been, what, late 70s, early 80s? Uh, that was 1980, specifically. Those ones are actually worth a lot of money right now to, to certain collectors because uh, I've, gotten, I've seen in pawn shops... People with those uh, selling those 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 wrist calculator watches, um, getting big money for them. Holy moly! I'm on uh, eBay right now. If you want a Casio Tron 29CS11 from 1974, it will cost you more than the Apple Watch. No kidding. Four hundred ninety-nine dollars. See, collector's item. The world of big data when it comes to music is just getting bigger. We're learning who the most profane rapper of all time is. 
still Snoop Dogg and This is a site called Rapalytics. Uh, they analyze more than a thousand songs and 150 rappers to create what they called a profanity index. And I'm stunned that Nicki Minaj is at the bottom of the list. Well, I know. She is one, two, three, four, four, you know, in the top ten. Look at y'all smoking ass Every pull nigga ass She, you know, Eminem, nowhere, nowhere to be found. She is marginally less profane than The Game and Fitty and Snoop Dogg. Uh, and if you want to go all the way to the top, the guy who curses the most, according to all these 150 rappers, and again, there are more than 150 rappers in the world, uh, of the 150 rappers that were analyzed, the most profane is Dr. Dre. I wonder how much of that has to do with the N-word. Hmm, that's interesting. They put on a chart here. The, um, uh, you've got the N-word. You've got f- miscellaneous then you've got um just generic misogyny homophobia and sexual related content the n-word is the most prominent uh, profanity in rap today but interesting to note misogyny has exploded between 2009 and 2013 yeah i'm looking at this uh profane words graph here yeah. Wow. It's remarkable that you look through the, the mid-90s um, into 98 or so, and misogyny sort of falls away as, as far as percentage of profane words. Yeah, you, your whole bitches and hoes thing. I mean, that was really big during the gangster rap era, which seemed to have hit a peak somewhere about late 94, early 95, and then a higher peak somewhere around 98. But then it went into a steep decline before having a resurgence in 2006 and another one. Well, and now we're in another resurgence. As with the exception of recently, homophobic related rap comments also uh, had a big explosion in the misogynistic era of the mid 90s, only to retract and shrink into the, the early 2000s. And now it's fairly consistent at about one and a half percent of profane words in a rap song today would be homophobic. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, all these things seem to be on an uptick with the exception of the N word. That seems to be dropping uh, has it's on a downward trajectory since 2012 but everything else that you talked about is either holding steady or increasing yeah the homophobic peak was in 2000 which 0.025 percent of words featured some homophobic lyrics falling by more than half by 2013 i wonder what you can do with this information well, I wonder if the it gives you a sense as to when new rappers come on to the scene and they've got their own way of, of expressing themselves, as it were. What's interesting is that this, you know, there's there's some people that are missing here. Uh, Odd Futures, one. Action Bronson would be another. And he would put the misogyny and the, uh, the homophobic stuff probably over the top. I would like to have somebody at the PhD level correlate this with trends in society. Ah, and yeah. tell me exactly what this means. Again, back to the homophobia, back to the misogyny, all that kind of stuff. If you were to swear yourself, it's quite possible it's because Apple's borked your iTunes music library. This was a bad one. If you upgraded to, Apple, uh, to iTunes uh, 12.2 and you clicked on the use the iCloud music library service which I did did you yes did it scramble your songs and titles and artwork and everything 
It hasn't scrambled all of that, but now I can't tell what's been downloaded off the cloud, what hasn't. Uh, when I click on one song, it seems to be repeated somewhere else, and then it moves it down. It's got some really weird juju going on here. There, there are some people who have had their libraries completely ruined. If you click on a song, it's not that song. If you click on that artwork, it's not that album. So you can fix this, though. It can be fixed. There is a way, and I'll post it in the show notes, there is a way for you to roll back everything to the way it used to be. There are some people who have told me that, uh, yeah, it screwed everything up, and then I shut down iTunes and I came back a day later, and miraculously, everything had sorted itself out. It's a seven-step process, apparently, but you do need to be comfortable with your Mac or PC itself, because you need to drag library files out of a folder, rename them, throw them back in, but go to geeksandbeats.com if uh, your iTunes music library has been borked since you upgraded. And the only reason why you would upgrade, of course, is because of the Apple Music streaming service. Right, and which, which I did. Um, and for whatever reason, well, because I was never a user of iTunes match mm -hmm. because I have too many songs in my library. So I didn't even, I don't want all my library in the cloud right now, uh, even for the streaming music service. So I clicked no. And as a result, I'm, I'm fine. But people who did click on using the, uh, the iCloud, um, music library, which scans your music library, makes it available for streaming on your devices. Uh, they, they, they all, all the meta metadata was completely destroyed. I am surprised to learn that uh, my Taylor Swift 1989 album was uh, one of the few ones that wasn't impacted by this upgrade. Oh, isn't that interesting? <laughs> Considering all of her... Coincidence? Yes, exactly. I think not. <laughs> you, you've got this interesting um, list here of the biggest selling record on vinyl in America so far this year. Is that Taylor Swift 1989 album on vinyl? Yeah, she is powerful. I don't know who's bought... Why would you want it on vinyl? I don't know. I, that's really interesting. Let me just call up this. Kids don't even know what vinyl is. You've seen that series where, where the guy gives a, a child today a piece of 1980s technology and asks them to figure it out and they can't figure it out yeah. they had no idea what a vinyl record was and isn't that the demographic of who's listening to taylor swift well you would think you know she sold 34,000 copies of 1989 so far this year which in the past would have been a good year-end number I don't know who's buying it. I didn't even know. Well, I guess everything's available on vinyl now to whoever wants it. But who who would have purchased that? I don't get it. If you look number number two, Sophie and Stevens, a uh, um, big indie favorite is uh, Carrie and Lowell album sold 32,000 copies, which I understand because he's a hipster kind of guy and a lot of people would buy his stuff because they are into vinyl. Arctic Monkeys, Alabama Shakes, Miles Davis, Kind of Blue, get that. Sam Smith, I even get because, you know, he's a, he's a good soul singer, so I would work. Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, absolutely. I totally get that one. 1979 is when Dark Side of the Moon came out, so... 72. Really? Oh, they reissued it in 79. They 
issued Dark Side of the Moon a few times on a whole bunch of different formats. Uh, at one point in the late 80s or something, it was on an ultra disc gold compact disc format. I remember, I listen, I probably have about five or six copies of Dark Side of the Moon. Uh, the, the first one came out March 1st, 1973. And then there was a reissue, and then there was the half master, half speed master. Then there was the CD. Whoa, what's a half speed master? What they would do is they would slow down the uh, ma- the, the the audio tape to, or no, sorry, they would master the they would create the master recording for subsequent pressings of the record at half speed that would allowed to pick up more subtleties in the master recording. I would have thought it would be the opposite, that you would double the speed of the tape so that you could actually get more information captured. No, they want to bring it down slow. Oh, okay. And that way you get all the nuances that that would be transferred. Um, What else do I have? Uh, I've got a box set. I've got a reissue in a special case. I've got all kinds of them. Uh, The Guardians of the Galaxy soundtrack was number eight, which is rather interesting. was a fun film and a really fun soundtrack as well. Yeah, because it's all the old 70s stuff. Exactly. Which, did you see the film? Yeah. Okay, so you know the basic premise is that a boy in the, the what, the late 70s, early 80s is abducted while listening to his Walkman, and so he only has that one cassette, and he's been listening to it for the past 30 years. <laughs> it starts with blue Swede, done a feeling. Ever wanted to be a big shot co-producer? It's just like Hollywood. Visit geeksandbeats.com to learn how you can pad your resume with an exciting show credit. We'll even send you the album cover of your episode, suitable for framing in your parents basement you've discovered the great canadian music map yes this is a project of music vaults which is run by universal music canada and if you go to music vaults and that's v-a-u-l-t-z.com you'll find it and basically what it is is using the power of um I guess Google Maps, you can click on any number of points across Canada and get some information about uh, the music that came out of this particular part of the country. And if you have something that you would like to include on the map, uh, there is a, uh, you can submit some 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 cool stuff. So for example, I'm going to click on Winnipeg, because it's uh, where I sort of came from, and we can break this down into 22 things from, 22 items in Winnipeg, two in Portage La Prairie, two in Selkirk, Manitoba, which is not too far away from where I grew up. Mm-hmm. So have a look, and oh, they talk about the Winnipeg Folk Festival, which was established in 1974, very, very big folk festival. So that's kind of cool. But, but uh, as I'm, as I'm zooming in here and I'm clicking on it what is it really showing me it looks like it's just showing me photos tied to particular songs or albums well it's it's a map of Canada that's supposed to reflect the Canadian music history so if you click on any of the pins that you see uh, you'll end up uh, you know so-and-so was born here this city was used in this particular song here's a concert or a festival that that happens at this location so you punch in your hometown and see what's nearby pretty much pretty much so if you want to where are you from originally hang on how is it possible that Winnipeg has 22 entries but Toronto only has 12 oh that's interesting isn't it that's very interesting so I bet Kingston has just as many Oh, Kingston only has two. 
Wait, wait a minute. Wait, it's a work in no, no. It's a work in progress. So hang on. Okay, because if I understand correctly, the tragically hip have plenty to say about Kingston. Well, they do. Okay, hang on. Let's just get a little bizarre. Yeah, here we go. We'll just zoom in a little bit more. So, for example, I've clicked on Toronto, and it pulls up the Masonic Temple, mm-hmm. also known as the Rock Pile. I didn't know that. Okay, I'm ashamed to admit that I didn't know that. Like, as, as in SCTV's Mel's Rock Pile? Was it? Hello again, and welcome to Mel's Rock Pile. I'm Rock and Mel Slurp, and uh, we're going to have a lot of fun on the Rock Pile today. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah. It was the site of Toronto's first Led Zeppelin concert, February 2nd, 1969. That's true. Very true. The tickets cost just two fifty. Yes, that's true. I've, I've been behind the scenes there. Oh, that the old Masonic Temple? The old Masonic Temple. Well, because CTV owns it, right? Or owned it. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. For a while. And Mike Bullard's show was out of there, and they recorded a bunch of comedy shows, and I had friends who were in the uh, directing business who were in, involved in that as well. My worst interview ever took place in the basement there. In the basement? Have you, have you been in the actual temple of the Masonic Temple? Well, I was in the middle of a very giant room with all kinds of weird markings on the floor, on the walls, and on the ceiling. And uh, there were two chairs placed in the exact center of the room, and I was told to sit there and wait for my interview subject to come. So I sat there looking around thinking, my God, what kind of weirdness happened in this room? Oh. And somebody taps me on the shoulder and says, hello, I'm David. And it's David Bowie. Oh, wow. That's kind of cool. Yeah, it was cool. And I, I was so freaked out that I forgot to unpress the pause button on my oh. uh, cassette recorder. Oh. And as a result, I talked to David Bowie for 45 minutes, and I have nothing to document that. Oh, I've as a radio boy, I've been there, too. I've been there, too. Yeah, everybody does it once. That's exactly it. Play, pause, record. You, you look at you look down and I would look down on, on every three or four minutes to make sure everything was, was still OK. That, that's how stressed out I was. Yeah, but I'm talking to Ziggy Stardust. I had a little bit on my mind. I was so starstruck and so freaked out by the fact that. I was talking to Bowie that I... I, I Well, then it was probably a good thing that you weren't up in the main temple because the temple is a large room, probably 40 feet by 100 feet. And the ceilings are probably... 15 to 16 feet high and the room is very dimly lit and there are uh, seats chairs that line the walls and they are carved wood chairs basically feel like they're embedded coming out of the wall itself and then at the front of the room there is i i'm not going to call it the grandmaster because honestly i don't know what it is that you know the, the nomenclature mm. but the guy at the top of the organization would sit in that center chair that was very throne like with all these miniature thrones uh, wrapped around the room it was very scary at the top floor as you about to, as you're about to enter it there is a massive mural of a masonic temple initiation ceremony and it's protected by plexiglass out of fear that someone would try to damage it everything i know about the masons i learned from the simpsons so i'll take your word for it (laughs) that's kind of like everything i learned about scientology i learned from south park (laughs) yeah exactly who says that cartoons aren't educational? <laughs> Meantime, you've got this weird band petition. Speaking of unusual things, a Creed is involved. Yeah, I thought this was a bit weird, but it's not as weird as you might think once you go deeper into it. Um, there is a new movie coming out. It's, it's a spinoff of the Rocky series, and it's called Creed, and it's about Apollo Creed's son. From the trailer, it looks like it's going to be a pretty good film. not built for this. These boys come in here, they gotta fight for life. 
People die in the ring. Your daddy died in the ring. I don't know him. I ain't got nothing to do with me. I've been fighting my whole life. It's not a choice for me. Every punch I ever thrown has been on my own. Nobody showed me how to do this. However, because it's called Creed, uh, as in the band Creed, uh, somebody has started a petition at change.org, and they are demanding that MGM change the name of the film. And I'm going to quote from the change.org petition request. The movie Creed about the son of Rocky Balboa's deceased trainer's son is making it difficult, if not impossible, for the still vital online Creed fan base to exchange thoughts and discussion regarding band developments, song interpretation, rumors, non-erotic fan fiction, and deeper insights into the expanded Creed universe. MGM has completely disrespected the Creed mutiny. <laughs> I didn't know that was a word. By giving the name of this still popular band for their non-Creed-related movie and have been stifling conversation by flooding social media hashtags and searches with non-music Creed discussion. MGM should have consulted Creed experts and online leaders before titling this movie. The Creed community will not be silenced. We can make a difference. The online Creed fan base and the discussion of this movie do not have to be enemies. We can be friends. However... I can guarantee that if MGM does not change the title, that no self-respecting Creed fan will ever see this movie, not even on bootleg. Oh, I'm terribly crushed, as I'm sure the producers are. The, the Creed fans do realize that Rocky predates their favorite band by 16, 17 years. Yeah, however, uh, you have to understand that this is also a bit of performance art. The guy behind the, uh, the petition is a writer from Los Angeles named Nick Robinson. And uh, he's he's just pulling everybody's chain, so it's not what you what you think. Oh, okay. But a lot of people. I mean, it was picked up by an awful lot of people who who think that this is a a, a real thing. So it's not actually a real petition. No, it's well, it's a real petition, but the uh, motivations behind it are not. Ah, that sounds pretty dumb. Yeah, but it's it. Listen, this is this is what we do online these days. We pull people's chains and we see what kind of reaction we can get. And uh, here's an example. Whether it's Christian rock or just pop, apparently, according to the Boston Globe, pop anyway is getting even dumber. The good life is what I need. Too many people stepping over me. Yeah, this is rather interesting in the sense that, uh, you know, analytics are, are everything when it comes to music these days. And people are finding new ways to look at music, analyze music, and then compare music of today to the music of the past. And we've talked about things like hit song science and some of the other algorithms that work uh, when it comes to... to yeah, I, what on earth is going on with those dogs behind I you? I have a couple of dogs who are... Uh, the little one's eating the big one. So I just closed the door. <sighs> Life in a home studio. Yes, I know. What we're, what we're looking at here is that uh, this, this latest bit of analysis, uh, it's based on a study called Lyric Intelligence and Popular Music. And what this happened here is that uh, a director of marketing at a seed agency called SeatSmart went through 225 songs over the last 10 years. Uh, these are all big billboard hits and have been hits for at least three weeks. He fed their lyrics into a, um, this, this... Seat Smart software system. Yeah, it's, it's one of these programs that allow that, that judge reading levels. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, if you've ever loaded up a website, and, or if you've ever had your own website, maybe using something like WordPress, you'll see that there are um, readability scales. 
Oh, yeah. Microsoft Word did that yeah. uh, all through my uh, college years, writing essays saying, you know what? There's this fine work for a grade 11 student. Oh, gee, thanks. So the, what this guy has concluded is that the reading level of pop lyrics is on a steep downward curve. In 2005, the average grade level of reading level of pop lyrics was grade 3.25. That has fallen to grade 2.75 in 2014. According to this, the dumbest song of the decade is 2010's The Good Life by Three Days Grace with a reading level suitable for a child of the age of six. Yeah. Now, pop music, we have to point out, is inherently dumb. It is supposed to be fun and transient and evanescent. Uh, it is not supposed to be, unless you're Bob Dylan or Simon and Garfunkel or somebody like that, it is not supposed to be, you know, necessarily a great work of, of, of literature. However, um, it's interesting to see that the what's popular in terms of pop music lyrically seems to be, well, getting dumber. Hip-hop apparently is dumber than country. Lady Gaga is dumber than Adele. Kanye is dumber than Drake. And like you said, the dumbest song of the decade is The Good Life by Three Days Grace. Does it surprise anyone that Kanye is dumber than Drake? I suppose Kanye is the only one who didn't know that. Uh, yes, that's true. Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook. And get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.